This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Clean clothes are something you might take for granted. Not Glenn Watkins of Denver. When you have clean clothes on, you have comfort in yourself. You're not dirty. When you get on a light rail train or on a bus, they don't know if you're homeless or not. But you have the, the air of you that has to say, hey, I demand respect too. Watkins has been living on the streets for six months. Standing outside the Denver inner city parish, he clenches a plastic garbage bag. What I have is pants, I have a undershirt, underwear, and uh, another shirt, that's all. You know, it's everyday stuff, but it's clean. Clean thanks to a truck parked nearby, a laundry truck run by a Denver nonprofit called Bayad Enterprises. Marcus Harris shows us around. So yeah, it's just like a, it's just like a laundromat, except nobody pays. Uh, this is where the coin mechanism would go. Inside are 12 commercial washers and dryers. There's the satisfying scent of detergent and clean clothes. The idea came from a trip Harris took to San Francisco. One of the things I saw there was a shower bus. A regular size public transportation bus that had shower stalls in it. And this bus pulled up to a fire hydrant and they did showers all day, no questions asked. And I was I was almost moved to tears. Shortly after that trip, an opportunity presented itself to convert an old document shredding truck. Harris says Bayad, the nonprofit he works for, went to the Denver homeless community with two ideas use the truck for showers, or turn it into a mobile laundromat. And the consensus was that if you're on the streets in Denver and you're fairly savvy, you can shower, but it's next to impossible uh, to do laundry. Because of the cost and lack of access to a laundromat. Moreover, clean clothes can make it easier to land a job. The laundry truck, which started earlier this month, can do up to 450 pounds of laundry a day. Harris says some people come with a lot to wash. We had one guy who was living in his car, and he had about seven loads. To make the system run, there's a generator, a propane tank for the dryers. As for water? So here at the Denver Inner City Parish, we're just hooked up to a standard water bib, which goes through this connection here. Basically like what you'd connect a garden hose to. They can also hook up to fire hydrants. It's something Bayad worked with Denver Water on, and the nonprofit has a meter to track the water they use so they can pay for it. But the truck doesn't just offer the chance to do laundry. For Marcus Harris, it represents much more. He says he came to Bayad straight out of prison. I like to consider myself a success story in progress. Came to Bayad with six felony convictions, uh, a history of homelessness and addiction. But they gave me an opportunity to tell my story, and they actually listened. This new laundry truck isn't the only innovation in homeless outreach in Denver. Soon enough, it'll make a stop at another, a tiny house village being developed in the northwest part of the city to house nearly two dozen people who were homeless. The truck has also visited a Denver school that has a lot of low-income students. The hope is to get a second laundry truck and bring it to other communities. And now let's talk about other unconventional ways of addressing homelessness in Metro Denver. David Henninger is the leader of Bayad Enterprises, the nonprofit we just talked about. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. And sticking for just a moment more with the new laundry truck you operate, we heard the gratitude people feel for it. It is certainly highly visible. But how important is something that in a way treats a side effect of homelessness? 
Well, it's important for the reasons that were talked about. I think um, we're an employment program, and we're looking at reducing the barriers that people have to getting a job. If clean clothes is a barrier, we're trying to overcome that as a means to an end. And, and in this case, the end is a, is a job. Is a job. And that is your fundamental mission. Yes. I want to say as well that Bayad has been working with the city of Denver on an effort called Denver Day Works. And this provides work with city offices like planting trees for parks and recreation uh, to people who are homeless. Uh, I understand that the inspiration for Denver Day Works came from the mayor of Albuquerque, New Mexico. What can you tell me about its beginnings? Yeah, I think about a year and a half before we started in a partnership with our mayor here in Denver, uh, Albuquerque had started a day work program. Um, and they were working in partnership with with a homeless shelter in Albuquerque to provide day labor jobs to individuals, primarily those that were – uh, holding up signs on the street corners. To the mayor, uh, that was offensive, and he wanted to see individuals given the opportunity to work other jobs. So here comes Denver and our mayor, and he looks at this and says, this would be a good idea for Denver. Um, so the city put out a request for proposal. And, and I understand that actually the first time the the proposals came out, you and other Homeless advocacy groups really didn't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. You, you you wanted to see some changes in it before you took part. Yeah, and, and this is probably the neatest thing about the story. Um, we did want to see changes, and we didn't apply. But the nice thing is the city reached out to us and to others and said, so why didn't you apply? Yeah, what was the answer? What about the original proposal for hiring those who are homeless for a day work uh, did you find unworkable? Several things. One was the target population. Uh, people holding up cardboard signs on the corner isn't necessarily who we want to serve in terms of people that we are considered to be homeless. We're talking about what many call panhandlers. Yes. And it's not always true that those folks are homeless. Right. And number one. Number two, they have a job. They're professional fundraisers. Uh, you think of panhandling as employment. Yeah, I do. Okay. Otherwise, why would the same person be at the same corner day after day if they weren't bringing in an income. You wanted to reach a different audience. That's correct. We wanted to reach people that were a little harder to reach, people that were sleeping in the parks, on the sidewalks, etc. So that was a start. Another thing is that we wanted to pay um, a wage to an individual of $12.59 an hour rather than something that was minimum wage so that it would have impact. So the original proposal was minimum wage? Well, or, or near that, okay. yes. So we were we didn't want that. There were a lot of other conditions, but we also wanted uh, a central gathering place where people could come and a place of high visibility because um, we don't want to hide people out. People are already feeling like they're they're having to hide out. Do you mean where people show up to get the work for the day? Yes. You wanted that to be visible. Yes, and so uh, we negotiated and picked Civic Center Park as the the meeting point. When we started this in, in on November first, actually, yeah. So it is underway, and uh, how is how has it been going? It's been a really interesting learning experience because we didn't know from the very first day if people were going to show up the second day, uh, or the third day, 
or the day after that. And what we found is the same group of people that showed up on that first day showed up the next day, every one of them. And is this a salve? That is, does it just temporarily give people work or is the idea that they get some sort of experience or training that can translate into something longer term? I would say the answer to that is twofold. Okay. Um, One is, yes, there are some specific skills to learn. Landscaping is a skill, for instance. Uh, Exposure to city employment in parks and rec, public works. The other part of that is that Bayad is working with that individual towards full-time competitive employment. This is, again, a means to a next step. We're also providing navigation service, resource navigation service to help people who are eligible to get on benefits, hopefully to get into housing, hopefully to get needed uh, supports so that they can move towards competitive employment. In a way, these are people who have um, not necessarily fallen through the safety net, didn't really even know the safety net was there for them. Uh, I think that's partly true. Yeah. And we found that that our quarterly statistics showed 65% of the individuals were coming out of prison, hadn't worked in over a year. So how many people have been taking part in this Denver DayWorks program? It's been about 140 individuals since November 1st. And the city has hired five individuals into park and recreation. Oh, taking them on full-time, yep. part-time? Yep, full-time. Okay. And then we've been able to – Bayad's other part of this is to do job placement and follow-up. Help them with their resumes, build something. And opening, bringing employers in to meet with them. Huh. And so over 40 people have been placed in jobs that aren't city jobs. So we've had great response from the private sector. The cynic in me says this was a way for the city of Denver to have somewhat cheap labor that it doesn't have to pay benefits for. What do you say to that? I say that, again, this is a means. It's a means to get people the work experience they need and to provide a support system to help that person become a taxpayer, to go to work, and to be part of our community. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and I'm speaking with the head of Bayad Enterprises, David Henninger. The nonprofit, as we were hearing just a few minutes ago, has started a mobile laundry truck to help those who are homeless and those without access to washers and dryers to clean their clothes because dirty clothes can be a block to employment. And we've been talking about their involvement in Denver Dayworks, in which the city and county of Denver hire those who are or have been homeless uh, for city work with the idea that they would build a career eventually for themselves. I'd like to touch on housing. We're seeing some unconventional ways to address the lack of affordable housing. The tiny house village, for instance, uh, that will provide uh, several dozen homes, at least temporarily, to those who have been homeless. What other innovative housing ideas are you seeing out there? And I, I guess it could be beyond Metro Denver, you know, ideas that this community could borrow. Well, I think that the the tiny home village concept, obviously, is something that politically, socially, economically has taken a long time to get approved in the city. Um, And there needs to be a lot of other alternatives um, created. I've seen modular homes, um, homes on wheels that are connected to each other. In other words, like um, six or seven units that that can be modularly put up. We've looked at yurts. Oh, yurts. Those are um, yeah. the kind of uh, rounded canvas tents that yeah. you often see in the mountains. Yes. Other cities have, have created alternative housing in pretty creative ways, particularly Seattle and Portland. 
Um, and I know that uh, many people from Denver have gone to look at those programs, come back with ideas. We're, and I think that the community and the community are the people that are affected, um, are excited about other housing alternatives. The key is reasonableness, reasonableness of accommodation, and then working out the trust levels with the community. The individuals that are living in these um, alternative situations need to be good neighbors. Yeah, the not-in-my-backyard, the NIMBY principle there. Yeah. Uh And how do you avoid uh, places like that not feeling like, you know, like ghettos, where you're just saying, this is where we put the, you know, the folks who've been homeless Part of that is the community integration uh-huh. and having people from like Homeless Out Loud attend the homeowners association me- association meetings like in Rhino, uh, Curtis Park, Five Points, so that they're real people interacting with the community. I understand one thing you've seen elsewhere in the country and would be interested in bringing together is a co-op model. Mm-hmm. So people have ownership in, say, a business or enterprise. What interests you about that idea? And, and maybe paint a picture of what it looks like? Sure. Well, throughout the country, there's and actually throughout the world, there have been co-op experiments, and there's been viable businesses created. Like what? Um, there's a company in Spain that manufactures uh, washing machines, refrigerators, and ships their products all over the world, and it's organized as a co-op. There's a laundry service uh, in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, that services Case Western and Children's Hospital organized as a co-op. Case Western, the the university. Yes. And so what interests me about it is there's so many creative things and creative people living on the streets, people that have incredible skills and ideas. And if the ideas are generated by the people directly involved and and they can come up with products and services um, in terms of the ideas and get the business development skills to get these things off the ground. I think it's critical. And the buy-in, you know, and then they have some economic interest, I suppose, in that co-op. Um, 100%, yes. You know, I think that a lot of the um, difficulty uh, of those who are, for those who are homeless is stigma. Absolutely. And and that that surrounds a lot of what you're trying to do with that laundry truck, for instance, yes. you know, is, is almost literally wash the stigma off people. Yeah. Are, are there unorthodox ways to address the stigma around homelessness and poverty, do you think? I think always the best way to, to reduce stigma is to actually deal with people that are being stigmatized so that you, you begin to see them as real human beings, that you interact with them. I don't think anything works better than the interaction, getting to know somebody, them getting to know you. Is that that integration you're talking about with communities and neighborhoods? Absolutely. And in employment employment situations, too, or riding the bus or whatever it is. The Colorado Right to Rest Act, also known as the Homeless Bill of Rights, died at the state capitol just recently. Uh, It's unclear if lawmakers will bring the bill back next year. They've had several iterations over the years. Uh, just briefly before we go, what ways do you think groups like Bayad could bring some unconventional thinking to where a person can rest? <laughs> well, again, um, Denver's a, a place where you cannot help but see people that are living in alleyways, living in parking lots, sleeping in their car. And again, it, it's being able to interchange with that person without feeling fear, to look the person in the eye, to nod at them, to smile, 
um, to ask them how they're doing, to in, try to engage in conversation. Now, whether that's unconventional or not, I don't know. But I think our tendency in a stigmatized situation is to try to avoid that person, have no contact with them whatsoever. Um, how does how does that change your interaction on on the street? Let's yeah. say that that someone comes up to you, yeah, and asks for money or. Um, just asks, says hello, you know, that kind of awkward opening, and you think, what do they want from me? <laughs> do, you, do you have a different interaction with that person? Than... I try to respond to them and say, hi, how are you? How's, how are things going? Um, I don't have any pocket change, um, but I do have a business card if you're interested in employment opportunities or a laundry service truck if you're interested in getting your clothes done, or we have Denver Dayworks, and you can certainly get involved. In other words, to me, uh, and I'm not assuming necessarily that's why the person's approaching me. So I want to explore that conversation a little bit further, get to know them a little bit. What are they, where are they living? How are they doing? Uh, what needs do they have? Who are they as a person? Well, this is why you're cut out for this work, David, I, I imagine. <laughs> I don't know about that, but it's been, uh, it's been quite a journey. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. David Henninger is executive director of Bayad Enterprises. That Denver nonprofit helps people with disabilities in addition to those who are homeless land jobs, as we've been talking about. We'll be right back with Boulder astronomer Doug Duncan. He's going to tell us about a cold and precarious place in our solar system. And he's been there. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Before the race to the moon or to Mars, there was a race to the North Pole, a deadly endeavor. In the 1800s, it set the stage for future adventurers and scientists. Astronomer Doug Duncan, director of Boulder's Fisk Planetarium, has spent a career studying distant corners of our universe. And today he brings some gripping stories of reaching the far ends of the Earth. And Doug, welcome back to the program. Good to be back, Ryan. You say that while it was a huge accomplishment to land on the moon... And, and we and we, in, in our language, we say, you know, that was a moonshot. Absolutely. Uh, you actually say reaching the North Pole in the 1800s may have been harder. How is that possible? Well, let's I would like to invite our listeners, put yourself back in the 1900s, and you're about to explore the far corners of the planet. The 1800s, right? Uh, sorry, the 1800s. Yeah. Thank you. Um, no radio, no telephone. When you leave home, you're gone. And... Uh, no maps, no GPS, no satellites. The idea of sending for help is is basically not there. Exactly. And you're going into terra incognita. You have some idea of what it's like up there, but relatively little. And to cap it all off, it took three days to get to the moon. We're talking about two expeditions closer to three years all alone up there. Oh, my goodness. And why was it important at that time to get to the North Pole? Two reasons, okay? The Franklin Expedition was looking for a passage called the Northwest Passage, which would have been a shortcut from Europe to the Orient. In those days, I mean, even in these days, a lot of valuable trade happens between Europe and China, the Orient. But uh, you'd have to sail around the tip, the bottom tip, of South America. It was an enormously long distance to get to the Orient. And if you could cut across the top of Canada, 
that would be economically a great shortcut. But really getting to the North Pole was a matter of pride, very much like being first on the moon. Okay, of national pride. Tremendous national pride. Would the, would the British Empire reach the North Pole or would it be someone like the Norwegians or the Swedes? Well, let's talk about the first of two early expeditions to the North Pole. In 1845, Captain John Franklin sets out from England with two ships. The Erebus and the Terror and 130 men. And they sail past Greenland and they sail to the north of Canada. Who names a ship Terror? I'm sorry. That's yeah. just, I just <laughs> well, like Erebus it... isn't much better if you read Dante. So uh, <laughs> maybe they were appropriately named because they sailed into the Canadian Arctic and they vanished. They simply vanished and they never returned. And without modern communications, how long does it take for someone uh, elsewhere to realize that this is going Well, wrong? they had provisions for roughly four years. We'll probably get back to their provisions. They had just invented tin cans in those days. And everyone thought, this is a very important expedition. Wonderful ships will give them, I think it was tons and tons of food in tin cans to last them three or four years. And so three or four years pass. Something's gone awry probably long prior. And that's only when there's a realization that something has right. gone wrong. And and I, I would say that the British government was kind of uh, negligent. But fortunately, Lady Jane Franklin, John Franklin's wife, was a very powerful, intelligent and outspoken woman. And she started giving speeches. What are we doing? The, the flower of our Navy has vanished. Why aren't we searching? And And little by little, the search ramped up until 11 ships at one time, two American and nine Brit, were combing Canada looking for uh, the missing Franklin ships. And some clues are found on an island north of the Canadian coast. You've actually been to this place, Beachy Island. It is by far the most desolate place I have ever been. I mean, it was cold. It was windy cold. 10, 20 degrees below zero, 20, 30 mile an hour winds, not a blade of grass growing on the whole island, and three graves three wooden gravestones of three of the sailors from uh, the Franklin Expedition. And they had died a year into the voyage. And in 1960, they were autopsied. And the graves were open. And it's unbelievable. There's a wonderful book called Frozen in Time. But I hope every listener will just Google the, the Franklin graves. Be aware that you're going to come across pictures of three sailors who died, looked like they died yesterday. You can really? see their eyeballs. You can see whether they shaved. You can see their shirts. It's just unbelievable. You were careful earlier to mention the tin cans in which their provisions came. And some people think that it might have been death by tin can. So the autopsy in 1960 revealed that the poor sailors had TB, scurvy, and lead poisoning. And the thing is, and this was so eerie, Still to this day, on this remote island, are some of the thousands of cans, and early tin cans were hand-soldered. And probably listeners know that, that solder is made out of lead. And I held that uh, can, one of the cans, in my hand with many, many gloves on, the pictures on the uh, on our website, on the Colorado Matters website. Yeah. And um, there's the lead. You can see just this irregular lead solder. 
And so we know that lead can compromise one's mental state. Was the idea that lead right. poisoning might have mentally led them astray? To, to some bad decisions. And then one of the later discoveries a few years uh, after the expedition was a lifeboat with skeletons in it and ropes. They were trying to get away from their frozen ship across the land. And, uh, and yet in that boat was silver and china from the ship. If I was trying to save my life and go across the land, I would not have taken hundreds of pounds of china with me. So was it because they were inexperienced and they didn't have a plan B because they were sailors, right? They don't know a lot about crossing the land. Mm. Or was it that they were a little crazy from the lead poisoning or both? I want to say that there have been some scientists saying that the lead theory is is not solid. You know, uh, it was bad. After three years ru- in the cold, running out of food, you got some TB, you got some scurvy, you got some lead in your blood, and it's exposure. And all of the above killed them. Ah, okay. So to, to single out lead, they're saying, is probably inaccurate. Okay, so then there's the second expedition. And he's my hero, Friedhof Nansen. He was the scientist among all the polar explorers. And being a scientist, he figured out better ways to do stuff. And he launches from Norway. Right. In 1893. A specially designed boat called the Fram. Now, Franklin's expedition had 130 men. Okay. Nansen's had 12. Oh. A small, maneuverable boat made with the innovation that the cross-section of the boat, instead of being a V, was rounded like a U. And so the outside of the boat was very rounded and polished very smooth. And the idea was when the ice closed in on you, instead of crushing your ship and you die, the ship pops up on top of the ice and remains a, a, a safe home for the winter. And we have to remember that that ice is is kinetic, right? It's, oh, absolutely. It's, it's moving. Yeah. And uh, the idea is that, yes, the ship will freeze in the ice, it will drift, but uh, they aren't exactly drifting to the pole, are they? Well, they came remarkably close because Nansen, being such a clever scientist, had found uh, wood from a shipwreck, a ship wrecked in Siberia, turned up three years later in Canada. Huh. So it's a great clue, right? It, 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 the ice is moving. And if you could only stay in the ice for two or three years, you would drift to the pole. And they drifted close. Close, but no cigar. Right. They got within maybe 200 miles of the pole. And Nansen, being not only a scientist but a badass, <laughs> who, who held records for cross-country skiing, every day he would ski as much as Olympic champions ski today. He practiced at age 20 by skiing across Greenland, all the way across. He was tough. So he and a friend from the ship got out. They had sleds. They had dogs. They had skis. And they started to walk to the North Pole. That's badass. Did they make it, though? They did not. They did not. And and yet, right, Nansen's voyage is considered a success versus the Franklin expedition. Yes. Well, of course, none of the people died. He was able to ski and kayak back meet up with another ship and get back to Norway safely, as did all of his crew. After two years, they both got back to Norway separately within the same week. Unbelievable. And everyone else copied Danton's use of dogs, use of clothing, uh, and his ship. The Fram was used by Roald Amundsen to, to discover, to reach the South Pole. Oh, goodness. That ship is famous, and it's in Oslo in a, in a museum today. 
So in 2019, an international crew, including climate scientist Matthew Shoup at CU Boulder, will recreate Nansen's voyage by freezing a ship in the ice and floating it towards the North Pole. Uh, We hope to talk to him ahead of that voyage. Uh, Presumably, this isn't just about nostalgia. What what could you learn from following in the path today? Many people say Nansen was one of the first oceanographer. Because when the, when the Fram was going along up there, they measured the bottom of the sea. They proved that there's a deep Arctic Ocean. They measured the climate. They took temperature every day. They really were the first scientific expedition. And because the polar regions are so important to us nowadays, because they show more than down here, usually the, the strong effects of climate change Indeed. will be in location up near the pole on a ship, and every day they'll take observations and they'll take video. And three times a year, a helicopter will bring that back, we hope, to the Fisk Planetarium for us to make a movie out of the new polar exploration. The Fisk Planetarium there in Boulder, which you lead. And I, I want to know fundamentally, as an astronomer who you know, studies the stars, why these polar expeditions mean so much to you. I think very few stories, and I hope listeners will learn more about these stories, uh, such as Nansen, such as Franklin, really epitomize the spirit of exploration. Nansen is is an enormous hero in Norway, somewhat like Lewis and Clark here. You know, what would America be with no Lewis and Clark, no Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin. I think there's something very fundamental in our soul that says a lot of us are explorers and the rest of us like to watch the brave explorers and see. Um, There is still a lot unknown in the world, of course, in space, in my field, at the bottom of the ocean. I spoke with Sir Edmund Hillary one time, and he said um, space is the new exploratory frontier, but it's the same spirit that finds the North Pole that goes to the moon and someday will go to Mars. Thank you, Doug. Yes, and come to Fisk Planetarium May 4th and 6th, and you can uh, hear even more of this story and see the pictures. Astronomer Doug Duncan directs the Fisk Planetarium. Indeed, he'll give a talk on these polar explorers in May, and that information is at cprnews.org. This is Colorado Matters. In Baffin Bay, where the whalefish blow, The fate of Franklin no soul may know The fate of Franklin no tongue can tell Lord Franklin and his sailors dwell We hear you loud and clear when you give us feedback. And we'll start with props from Peggy Carey, who heard my interview with Congressman Ken Buck. The Greeley Republican has a new book titled Drain the Swamp. Carey calls one of the questions I asked, quote, the best I've heard in American media. The British, she points out, are wicked interviewers. Here's the question she refers to. Can you help me understand the contours of the swamp? What puts you out of the swamp and others in? And is the swamp a way actually just of talking about, I don't know, like your opponents? 
Well, I, I'm in the swamp. Uh, I, I'm not denying that at all. There, there are some people who are in the swamp and, and they think they're in a hot tub. Uh, and there are other people who are in the swamp and they realize that, that it is corrupt and dangerous and, and a lot of us want to reform it. Carrie says she looks forward to more courageous questioning. Many of you shared memories of the Denver after an interview about the downtown department store, which closed 30 years ago this month. My guest was Mark A. Barnhouse, who's written The Denver Dry Goods, where Colorado shopped with confidence. That was the store's motto. Listener Nathaniel Bostwick remembers the price wars. He writes at CPRnews.org, The competition was great. The Denver Dry, the May Company, and Daniels and Fisher, and their competing ads in the Denver Post and Rocky Mountain News. Peter Hulak of Denver emailed, When I was young and when my parents were introducing me to the concept of shopping, I was confused that any store might be called the Denver Dry. I had to learn that there wasn't any place called the Denver Wet. Karen Nelson of Greeley wrote on the CPR News Facebook page, My friend and I would take the bus downtown to see a movie or go skating and then eat tuna salad sandwiches at the Denver Dry's tea room. We were juniors in high school. And Sharon Bolsinger of Boulder says, Fantastic interview. Could you do the same for Newsteaders? It was located next door to the Denver and was a superb place to shop and get your hair done, too. Sharon, you're in luck. Mark is writing a book out next year called Lost Department Stores of Denver, which will have a chapter or two on Newsteaders, as well as Fashion Bar, Joslin's, and The Golden Eagle. Also on the show this week, we heard that the West is entering a new era of wildfires. And according to a report from CU, fire-prone communities must adapt in the face of climate change. Well, Jennifer Stewart of Nederland heard my interview with one of the authors of the report and says one fact we failed to address is, quote, the invasion of the forests by illegal campers who leave burning campfires. She adds, there isn't enough enforcement, not enough patrols. This is a terrible fire risk. We already have a fund for extra patrols during the summer, but they are not 24-hour patrols. Keep your feedback coming, and we'll continue to air it in loud and clear. I'm at CPR Warner on Twitter. The show is at Colorado Matters. We're CPR News on Facebook. And there are all kinds of ways to leave comments at CPRnews.org. How do you kiss a bear? Our next guest, Holly Arnold Kinney, learned how when she was a kid. She grew up at a restaurant called The Fort in Morrison, where a black bear named Sissy was her pet. She has written a children's book about those days called Sissy Bear at the Fort. It's a finalist for a Colorado Book Award. And uh, nice to see you again, Holly. Great to see you, Ryan. Okay, how how do you kiss a bear? What are the mechanics of that? (laughs) Well, not only I was kissed by Sissy Bear, but many, many of our customers in the 1960s and 70s. You take a maraschino cherry and you put it between your lips and you stand very still. And Sissy would come up and stand on her hind legs, put one paw on either shoulder, and then she'd gently bend down and take the cherry out of your mouth with her mouth. With her mouth. And, and then you're kissed by the bear. A kiss. And how is a bear's breath? Hers is pretty good. Okay. <laughs> she she chewed a lot of buffalo bones. How old were you the first time you did that? I was nine years old. You were nine. And I took naps with her after school. A little backstory here. Your mom and dad opened this restaurant called The Fort in 1963. 
It's a replica of an old trading post on the eastern plains called Bent's Fort. And before long, your family ends up adopting this bear, Sissy. How did that come to be? It was the very first summer we had opened. And um, in those days, in the 60s, you'd have these sort of traveling circus acts. And this uh, trainer named Tuffy Truesdell had a traveling circus uh, going with uh, a bear, a wrestling bear named Victor. And he also wrestled alligators. And he came to my father and said, can I put my circus tent up in your courtyard of the fort? And uh, it'd be an attraction for people to come and see. And they could actually pay a dollar and wrestle Victor the bear. And Tuffy was from the Denver Zoo, was a very good trainer, and had a relationship with people at the Denver Zoo. And so uh, the Denver Zoo actually had a an abused little bear, a bear who had been abused, a little tiny cub. She was two months old. She had been at another game farm. And uh, she had been declawed, and the bank that particular game farm went bankrupt, and so they she was given to the Denver Zoo, and they couldn't take care of her because she couldn't protect herself with the other bears without her claws. So instead of euthanizing her, the Denver Zoo offered her to this animal trainer, Tuffy Truesdell, who had this traveling circus, and he said he really couldn't take on another wrestling bear, but he knew the Arnold family at the fort, and we were way out in the country, my family. And so he said, if you, the Denver Zoo, get them a zoo license, then I will teach the family how to handle a wild animal. A wild animal not able to defend itself, and so that could not be sort of re-released into nature by any means. Correct. Uh, I think some might hear this and, and say, gosh, you know, feelings about uh, traveling shows, wrestling with bears, keeping it a bear at a restaurant, you know, that, that those mores have changed. Um, what were your thoughts at the time? How do you look back on that period? As a child, I we had six German shepherds, um, rabbits, a couple pet skunks. My mother grew up on a farm in Georgia, and she loved animals. And so, Sissy, I was nine years old. Here was this little baby abused bear. And we were taught with the trainer how to not give her lots of water, but don't let her eat any food unless she eats from your hand. And once she took a bite of food from your hand, then that forms a bond with the animal. And so for me, my goal as a nine-year-old was to uh, build a bond of trust and love with this little animal who had been abused. So I felt that was it was very exciting to me. It brought out my nurturing and empathy skills, I guess, and to help save the little bear. You became friends. We became very close friends. What did that look like throughout your childhood? Well, I would get the bus to go down to Red Rocks Elementary School, and then, uh, but Sissy also formed a very close bond with our German Shepherds, particularly one named Lobo. Yeah. And they would play and play, and, and I think Lobo was also a rescue animal because we found him, we were driving in five points at the time, and there were kids who were putting a wire around his back haunches and dragging him along the street. My father stopped the car, got out, said, I'll give you $20 for that dog, and the kids said, great, take the money, and we got this German Shepherd, 
And so he came to live with us too. And became friends with Sissy and Bear. And Sissy. And I think because they both had somewhat of an, an abusive background, were rescue animals, they formed an incredible bond together. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is Holly Arnold Kinney. She's written a children's book called Sissy Bear at the Fort. And uh, I suppose if you picked up the book and and didn't know the story, you'd think it was made up. But no, indeed, she grew up in a replica fort in Morrison, Colorado. It's the Fort Restaurant today, of course. And she grew up there with a black bear named Sissy. Uh, Where did Sissy live exactly? Well, we blasted a cave for her out in the Red Rock. uh, And then we built a lean-to so she could have her own privacy. We filled it with hay, and we also had a um, horse trough that we filled with water to be her swimming pool with a beach ball. And we put a chain-link fence in the open-air courtyard that would separate her quarters from regular customers walking into the courtyard to go on into the restaurant. Were you afraid of Sissy Bear? I wasn't afraid until I was much older. Uh, when she, when I was nine, we would take naps together. When I'd come home from school, I actually have a picture in my book of of taking a nap with Sissy, and I'm lying on her, and we're we would every day after school take naps together. And my dad actually called me she who naps with bears. She who naps, and you, there are images of of this at cprnews.org. And uh, but once uh, I my father sold the fort, I went away to live back east with my aunt Mary. Went on to high school and college. Came back. Uh, she was of old age. She was she lived for nineteen years. And when I came back, she was about um, fifteen, seventeen years old. She was uh, six foot five, seven hundred pounds, oh solid muscle. And because I had been away from seeing her on a daily basis for many years. Um, I was, uh, I was a little afraid of her because I didn't have maintained that relationship with her, but my father and my brother did, and they continually went up to see her and spend an evening with her. Just briefly, um, Lobo, the dog and Sissy, the bear, uh, as you say, they had quite a close bond and that was true up until the end. Well, the sad thing about Lobo is he was uh, like dogs do. They'll wander the fields, and a pack of raccoons at night uh, bit him all over, and then he uh, got infected. We found him barely alive in the fields. We took him to the vet, and then about 3 in the morning, Sissy Bear woke us up whining and whining and whining, and we made her hot milk and honey to calm her down. And then she, um, the the at morning at 7 a.m., the vet called and Lobo had died in the night, and she knew it. And she went into this whole grieving period and wouldn't play with the other German shepherds for about a year. My. Thanks for sharing this story with us, growing up with a black bear. <laughs> Holly Arnold Kinney runs the Fort Restaurant in Morrison, which was founded by her parents. And her book, Sissy Bear at the Fort, is a finalist for a Colorado Book Award.
A popular energy efficiency program is on the chopping block under President Donald Trump's budget proposal. The Energy Star label helps shoppers determine which products will save them money over time. As CPR's Grace Hood explains, it gauges efficiency in everything from washers and dryers to light bulbs to entire homes. Construction workers in North Denver are on the site of a new housing development called Midtown. This is ground zero for Colorado's construction boom. The company behind the project has a selling point designed to give it an edge. It's building Energy Star rated homes. What we're doing here is checking to make sure this attic is insulated. Some of the construction work is verified by Steve Eagleberger. He works for an independent company called Energy Logic. And this one is not insulated at all. Eagleberger makes notes on a tablet. Then he's off to the next thing, a checklist of dozens of items. Steve Byers, CEO of Energy Logic, says this home won't get the Energy Star seal of approval until the builder fixes the insulation. The Energy Star brand has brand recognition on par with like Coke and Pepsi. This is a, a very successful program. You know, I don't know what more one could want out of a government program. With Energy Star, the government sets criteria for efficient products. Companies submit goods to a third party for testing. If they meet the criteria, manufacturers can use the familiar blue sticker to market energy efficiency. But President Donald Trump proposed to eliminate the program in his March budget recommendations. The Environmental Protection Agency and the Department of Energy administer it. Trump targeted both of those agencies in his budget. These cuts make no sense. Lowell Unger is with the nonprofit American Council for an Energy Efficient Economy. His group, along with 80 other nonprofits and companies, wrote to Congress to urge continued support of the program. The bottom line is proposed cuts to Energy Star would harm American consumers, they would destroy jobs, and make air pollution worse. In 2014, the EPA estimates the program helped American consumers and businesses save $34 billion. The program costs about $50 million a year. EPA surveys show Energy Star has a high recognition rate for consumers in the U.S., Mike Gazzano works for Delta Products, which makes bathroom ventilation fans. He says shoppers also recognize the label in Mexico and Canada. We do see that actually as a distinguishing factor, kind of along the line of the engineering and the technology and seeing it as a premium product versus, say, an average or typical bath fan. And that brand recognition is growing. The EPA reports more than 90 percent of households recognize Energy Star when shown the label. That's compared to just over 40 percent in 2002. Visit Best Buy in North Denver, and you can pick out the blue label on washers, refrigerators, and TVs. Ed Toombs is shopping for a big-screen TV. He's looking at size, picture, and energy costs. If I saw one that was substantially lower than the other, that would factor into my decision. Toombs sizes up savings with the help of another government program called Energy Guide. The black and yellow stickers help shoppers estimate the cost of running appliances over a year. Most TVs cost between $10 and $20. On the LED TVs from one to the other, they're pretty competitive as far as energy efficiency. Energy Star has seen some ups and downs. In 2010, workers at the Government Accountability Office posed as product developers and got the Energy Star label for fictitious products. That launched the third-party certification that exists now. Doug Johnson works with the trade group Consumer Technology Association. He says that process can take time out of the already crunched product development cycle. 
So it's a part of the program that we think should be re-examined. In fact, we've been advocates for improving that part of the Energy Star program. Johnson says his association supports the Energy Star program. But another trade group for appliance manufacturers also wants to see tweaks if the program continues. Ultimately, it'll be up to Congress to decide whether shoppers continue to see the blue sticker on goods in the showroom. I'm Grace Hood, CPR News. That's Colorado Matters for today. I'm Ryan Warner. Our theme was written and performed by Kip Kipper at Coop Studios in Boulder. Thanks for spending time with us at Colorado Public Radio.